Welcome to the Being Human podcast brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's leadership development and coaching programs, head to firsthuman.com. Now enjoy the show. This is Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton, Professor Theo Companol, <laughs> Professor. Oh, well, there, yeah. yeah, almost there. Yeah. Medical doctor, best selling author, international consultant. Welcome. Welcome to this. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you. Yes, and you were just explaining you're uh, in a in a villa on the coast of Belgium. Is that right? Overlooking the overlooking the beach. Yeah, exactly. Very nice. Perfect. Uh, I see the dunes, the shore, the sea, and somewhere on the other side is Suffolk. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, Suffolk. So I'm in Suffolk on the other side of the the North Sea, or the yeah, I suppose yeah. it's the North Sea. It's not quite the Channel. Um, yeah. So yes. So the reason that reason that I'm here and we're on this call is uh, David Allen, who was a previous guest, highly recommended your work um, as another expert in, in productivity and managing stress. And and he and I had a fantastic interview with him. Um, so I was okay. I need to get you on the show. And now I've read your book, Brain Chains, which uh, I haven't read all of your books. I I know you've got more, um, which I definitely like to focus on on today. But before we get into that, I'm actually very interested in your your backstory before you, you came to be an author and, and a consultant and you now work with executives and so on. So you started in neurology and psychology. Tell tell psychiatry. Tell me about the journey from well, there. It's, a, to it's a long journey. So I became a medical doctor in England in a sorry in Belgium. Then I studied neurology and psychiatry in the Netherlands. Then I went to Penn University in the United States and stayed in the States for two years and a half. Then I returned to Belgium for seven years at the University of Leuven. And then I moved to the Netherlands for 20 years. And uh, now I'm back uh, since, uh, what is it, 11 years in, in Belgium. And um, I got an early, very early interest already in 76 in the subject of stress. That became the subject of my PhD at University of Amsterdam. And then there were two surprises. The first one was that this thesis about stress in, in uh, secondary schools created uh, a riot circus, a media circus, got a lot of attention. And that was, that was the first surprise. I kind of liked it to be in the middle of polemics in all directions, radio, television, magazines, newspapers. And what, what, what was so controversial about it? Well, there were, uh, what I did was kind of special because I did my PhD in the Netherlands, but I had chosen Belgium uh, schools in Belgium, not only because I had some connections there, but also because it was possible at that time in Belgium to compare boys' schools, girls' schools, and mixed schools, and to compare the old system. More ever people uh, before the Anglo-Saxon system was adopted, but in, it used to be that when you started in secondary school, you knew exactly each year where you were going. You were in the same class, and you went was 
perfectly predictable. Then the law moves the schools to the Anglo-Saxon system where you can choose your package of subjects. And, uh, but typically for Belgium, um, in the beginning, three quarters of the schools refused to uh, follow the law uh, because they, did, they thought it was not the, the educational way a good way to teach children. And so I was able to compare the modern system, as it was called, and the traditional system. And then the results were kind of uh, surprising. And one of the most controversial things was that uh, competition, that children prefer schools, feel better, feel less negative stress in schools where uh, there is a, a fair degree of competition. Hmm. And that went against all ideological ideas at the time. And it went also against the hypothesis we have. So we, we recalculated our results two or three times because we thought they had made a mistake. And, but it was very clear that a fair level of competition in a school is, is positive. But of course, it's one of those graphs. If you don't have enough competition, children don't feel uh, healthy, then it, the, the well-being increases. But when you go beyond the top, then competition becomes something negative. So that was very controversial. It still is. And the second thing is that girls experience more, very significantly more negative stress in mixed schools than in girls' schools. Hmm. And then later it was found out that girls in um, non-mixed schools, girls in girls' schools, uh, choose more often boy subjects like physics, mathematics, and so on. And that after secondary school, uh, they choose more male uh, professions than in mixed schools. So that, uh, so that was a few of the, the probably the, the, these were the controversial results. One of them totally unexpected um, that got a lot of uh, discussions going on. So that was the first surprise. And then the- Which was the one which was totally unexpected of, of the two you've just- The made. competition. Okay. Uh, because in those days in, in Belgium and the Netherlands, the, the ideology in schools went to against meritocracy, against competition, children, uh, they should not be graded, no points. Uh, every child is, uh, uh, all the children are the same in a way. So that, that was really not, uh, yeah, you were not supposed to, to tell people that a good degree of competition. That, no, I must not say that, that people feel better, feel less stress, when there is a fair degree of competition. And then the other thing that went against the grain, the last thing, is that children feel better in schools where they have a class teacher. And so in the old system, you had a teacher, and most of the subjects were given by this one teacher. And if the subjects were given by other teachers, you still had your teacher. And so it turned out that children identify with their school and with the class uh, through the teacher and then in the book sorry 
In the modern system, children go from classroom to classroom, from one teacher to the other teacher, and if you ask them, who is your teacher? Well, they have money. So the role of the class teacher as um, to balance the stress in a class in a school uh, was was much more important than than we expected than a lot of people expected. But that's a long time ago. So to to get to the subject of today, uh, the second surprise was that all this attention in the media around the stress in schools, then caught the attention of a world I didn't know at all, the business world. So there were companies, at the time, in those days, stress was really a taboo in, uh, in, in the business world. And, but there were companies that were wondering, hey, and they called me and they said, Theo, stress, that's not just important for schools, must be, uh, interesting for other organizations too. And so I went and explained about stress to those people. And it there was like a fit that what I was telling them, my rather practical approach without the usual psychiatric wishy-washy mythologies. Um, it, it, there was a connection there. And so it started then with uh, and then I also was invited by business schools, and there was like a, a change in in my in my career. And uh, I like this idea of um, when you can improve the way people manage stress in an organization that it has not an impact on one or two people, but on a whole organization of 100, 1,000, 2,000, 20,000 people. So that that worked out well. And then in this process, I discovered the important role of the manager and how in companies, when they have an ex a very good professional, a fantastic bean counter, lawyer, uh, economist, engineer, doing a fantastic job, that the way to reward this person, the ultimate reward is promotion. And then, Every time you promote a fantastic professional to become a manager, you lose your professional. And the manager you get sometimes, or rather often I would say, is not a very good one because the competences and the qualities of a person that make him a fantastic professional become a liability when this person has to deal with people, with group, with emotions, with conflict, with motivation, with demotivation. They don't like that because they are they have chosen for a profession where they're dealing with things usually, and all of a sudden to to deal with people uh, doesn't work. Yeah, I saw a study on that uh, related that around salespeople. And interestingly, even for salespeople who you might think are more people friendly, the best sales performers are predictably the worst sales managers. Absolutely, and that's one of yeah. I worked with. Uh, at one point with those salespeople, they are a very good example. An, an excellent salesperson is not a good regional manager, sales manager. But it's the same in research, a fantastic region. One company I was working with, they had a, a, a very creative researcher, an engineer. He earned this company billions. And then he was promoted to become the director of the research department. 
and nothing came out of his hands anymore. And he was a lousy manager, but the other researchers had such a, an esteem for him that they didn't give them negative feedback, not to the person himself, not uh, outside the organization, but things went really wrong in the research department. That's and then under the label of stress in the research department, I got involved. And I discovered this, this painful situation that an, an esteemed person, uh, this esteemed person was the, the, the root of the unhappiness in the organization. And that's how I got uh, more and more involved in what I, I say, trying to teach managers the directions for use of people. That's how I got involved more and more in the business world. And you left the schools behind? I mean, did you ever yeah. come from helping in schools? In 2000, I completely left the uh, university. No, I meant, I meant um, actually helping schools. Was there never a pull to go help with schools, given your research started there? Yes, yes, I did. I did. And, and then, but for many years, I was no longer involved in schools. But now with my new research on the way we use technology in the wrong way. And I'm, I mean, the circle is, uh, I made a full circle because now again, I'm very, I'm trying to get a foot in the door of schools to, to reach teachers and help them, inspire them to teach children how to use this fantastic technology we have today uh, but to use it in different ways so that it is not as counterproductive as it is today for many right. teachers and pupils. Okay. Okay. And that's the, so that's the subject of your book, Brain Chains, and you enumerate, I'm, I'm presuming yeah, that this is where we're going, and you enumerate several chains in which we're chained to our technology and then how we can break those chains. Um, and you're saying that applies both to potentially to managers and is also relevant in schools as well. Is, is yeah. That? Yeah. That's how it went. That's how I, I got the, yeah. But the way, by the way, the, my suspicion about the use of the technology started already a long time ago with the, I was working mainly at the time with executives when the Blackberry uh, appeared <laughs> all of a sudden. And in the beginning, the Blackberry was really a status symbol. Huh? They don't have a BlackBerry yet, so <laughs> it started really at the top. But even those top people had a, a feeling that the way they were using the technology was counterproductive instead of productive. And that's another aspect of the way I've been functioning in my professional life. The first driver one of the first drivers, curiosity. I want to find out how things really are. And the second thing is that I do not like opinions. Opinions for me, that's for the bar. Can be fun. Uh, I distrust opinions, even my own opinions. So when I have an idea, when I had this feeling of something wrong here, this is not, this is not, and, and, and by the way, I got, my BlackBerry, because I like the technology. I got very soon a BlackBerry myself. I imported it from the United States. And then I experienced the impact of the BlackBerry on my own work, my own 
behavior. And so this suspicion, this opinion, what I like to do then when I have an idea like that is to delve into the research to find out what do we know about this. Because knowing, that's a different story. And delve deep into the research to find out what we know about it. And once I had a, think I have a pretty good understanding about what we know, then I burn the midnight candle again to turn this knowledge into a simple language that everybody, students, managers, the public at large can understand. So that's what I have been doing. I didn't do any world famous research myself, but I've always been busy to be on the interface between the scientific world and this knowledge, and then to translate this to lay people. Okay, and, and what did you discover about this technology? Well, uh, that my suspicion was correct, and that it was even uh, after six years, I, I took six years to, to really uh, study all these aspects, and that, my, that it was even worse than I expected, the negative impact, not of the technology, because I have to repeat again and again, it's not the technology that the problem is, that is the problem, but it's the way we use it. Yeah, and because you can use this technology, this information and communication technology that we have in our pocket now, you can use it in two ways. You can use it to improve your intellectual productivity and creativity, or you can become an addicted consumer and use it in a way that undermines not only your intellectual productivity, but also your creativity, causing more stress, causing more uh, trouble in your social relationships and so on. So. That, that's very important. The technology is fantastic and we are only at the beginning yeah, of, of an evolution that's, of course, the, 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 the media are crazy because now it's everywhere. Uh, <clears throat> it is artificial intelligence. Hey, wait a minute. This is our really things that people who don't know a thing about intelligence and who don't know a thing about the brain are telling until it, um, artificial intelligence is it's, it's, it's powerful, extremely powerful statistical uh, elaboration of, of, of masses of data, but it's nowhere near to human intelligence. Yeah, so that's a, it's very artificial and very little intelligence. So it's learning, yes, but it's deep, it's not even deep learning. There's also misunderstanding about deep learning because deep learning has nothing to do the original term with deep learning but it is layers and eh? it is so-called neural networks trying to emulate the brain and the more layers they use they call it deeper but it has nothing but really nothing whatsoever to do with deep learning as you would wish it were Hmm. But we're on a sidetrack there. Right? Yeah, no, deep in the technical sense, but not how we would understand it as humans. No, 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 not at all, not at all. Hmm. 
Okay. You're far away. So you discovered that this this technology can be harmful for our intellectual productivity and for our creativity. So what what does the data tell us there? Well, the root problem is always being connected. Yeah, that's really the root problem. Uh, and the other, most of the other negative consequences start there. And there again, there is an an important uh, differentiation to make, difference to make, that is the, the possibility, the ability today to be connected at any time, anywhere, like we are doing now, with anybody, or for some jobs even more important, with any database of uh, data in the world, is fantastic for our intellectual productivity. And that's one. However, always being connected is a disaster for our brain. So this possibility is great, but when you're always connected, that's a clear disaster for every aspect of your brain work. And I prefer to use the brain, use brain, use the word brain work, by the way, because most people I uh, like to talk about knowledge workers, right? Or, Call them brain workers because knowledge workers implies a certain superiority. I'm the knowledge worker. I'm an IT guy. I'm a financial guy. But the knowledge workers are everywhere in organization. Even at the front line, a modern operator is a knowledge worker. There is no work in our modern organizations anymore that's pure handwork. Right. And you, uh, you get the example of, of scaffolders, right, in your book. Yeah. Yeah. But it's. But it's ever a Ford said, yeah, that why do I have this to deal with this whole person if the only thing I need is two hands? Well, this handwork is taken over by robots. The, the operators need a good combination of good hands and a good brain and social intelligence to connect their brains with the other brains they're collaborating with. Yeah, so everybody is a brain worker nowadays. Yeah. And the amazing thing is then when you ask the people what's the most to important tool you have to be successful in your life and your work, 95% say my brain, our brains. And then when I ask them what do you know about your brain, practically, they say about the directions for use of your brain, zero, nothing. People don't know anything about their most important tool. So that's why before going into what I learned about the use of technology, I explained some basic facts, as you have seen in the book, some basic facts about the functioning of our brain. But back to the brain change. So the most important, yeah? Well, no, I'm just wondering, that might be useful just to, to, so what are the two or three things that we don't understand about our brains that you think is useful for us to know? Well, the first thing is that there are, three brain networks, because our brain is a huge network of 150 billion cells, with each of them, the, the cortex, that helps us to handle information and to act or, or stop acting. And so our brain is a huge network of networks of networks. And there are little cells where one cell has 300,000 
connections in this brain. So this is a powerful network. And there are three of them. You would say the way the brain functions is different from anatomy. The way it functions, we have a thinking network, we have a reflex brain, and we have an archiving brain. And the thinking brain, let me start with the reflex brain, because that's the oldest brain we have. We, we, we share it with all animals. And this reflex brain is stimulus-driven. And think about the reflex when the doctor knocks you need to see if uh, your reflexes are okay. There's a stimulus path and you have an action. And it's very fast. That's one thing. But it's stimulus-driven. And it's here and now. For our reflex brain, the only world that exists is here and now. Uh, to the extent that I'm in touch with it, with one of my senses, the, the five traditional ones and other senses we have in our body. And as soon as the world is out of the reach of my senses, doesn't exist anymore. So for this reflex brain, there is no future, there's no past, there's only here and now, the present. And it's geared to survival and procreation. Uh, in that sense, it's very primitive. That primitive actions, survival, and procreation. And then we have the thinking brain, which is uniquely human. Here and there, animals, especially chimpanzees, but also dolphins, cows, they have a little bit of a start, startup of the thinking brain, but it's, it's very primitive. That's about the stage where this uh, artificial intelligence is that. not yet, but uh, it's near that. It's very, very simple. Almost a cow. Please, pardon? Almost a cow. Yeah, the level of cow. Uh, or a donkey. <laughs> but the, the human thinking brain has something very special. First, it's goal-oriented. But the second and most important thing is is that we can get away from reality. We are the only animal that can, to that extent, do abstract thinking, totally away from reality. We can think about the past, which is not present by definition. We can think about the future. You can do scenario planning, or you can use your fantasy and start writing a novel, a person that never existed, uh, a world that will never exist. And you can think about today and study, hey, what if, what if you can postpone your decisions? The most important part is abstract. Totally, it can be totally disconnected from the reality around you. That's uniquely human. That's also the basis for language. And it's through this capability of language that we are different from animals. An animal, every animal that's born has to start from scratch or almost from scratch. But then we can pass on our knowledge from generation to generation and it keeps increasing. I can share my knowledge. Like, uh, when we, we, I don't know how many people listen to this. Millions. Uh, <laughs> To this, but when I share my knowledge with 100 people, yeah, it multiplies this knowledge, and this might give other ideas to people, and and we are progressing. So this is 
in uniquely human, this abstract thinking, but there is one very important limitation that is that we can only concentrate, focus on one thing at a time. And only one. And that's very basic for the rest of my story, why being always connected is such a disaster. The third brain we have is our archiving brain. So that's the brain, the network. While we are talking, while people are listening, uh, I'm making connections. Yeah, the, or, or the, the, proce the processing of the information is not in the cells, but is in all those connections. And all the time, millions for the moment, your brain, my brain, we're disconnecting, connecting millions of connections. And this is going on all the time. However, your archiving brain and your thinking brain share the same basic, it's called prefrontal computer. And our brain computer always runs at 100% of its capacity. So it's a pure urban myth coming from a third or fourth category, a little movie, that we only use a small part of our brain. That's nonsense. This computer all the time runs 100%, but it's shared by the thinking brain and the archiving brain. And the archiving brain is, scientists call it often the default brain. The archiving brain takes whatever is left. So when your thinking brain occupies the computer 100%, there's not much left for the archiving brain. When your thinking brain uses 0% of the central computer, your archiving brain has the whole computer for itself. And that's happening at night. And when you rest, rest in the sense when you're not thinking, when you're relaxing, when you're doing your work and after an hour you take a break and have a chit chat, uh, that for a chit chat you need only 20% of your thinking brain, but then your archiving brain has 80% to store the information of the meeting you come from, and start organizing the information for the meeting you're going to. So the reflex brain, thinking brain, and the archiving. And with this knowledge, then we can better understand what's going on when you're always connected. Because when you're, okay, so when you're always connected, what's, what's, the, what's the problem then? Well, the problem is it creates some problems by itself, but the most important problem being always connected creates is that it seduces you to multitask. And the thinking brain can not multitask. That's basic. That's the starting point. Your thinking brain can only focus, concentrate, pay attention. I love the English expression, pay attention. In other languages, they don't say pay. It's say like something, give attention. No, you pay attention. You pay for it in energy, in willpower. You pay attention to follow a conversation, to read a book, to write. But your thinking brain can only pay attention to one thing at a time. The rest of your brain is a multitasking wonder, a miracle. But your thinking brain can only focus on one thing at a time. So 
every time you change subjects, you change tasks, your thinking brain has to switch. And it's the switching that's the problem. Because it's in the switch that you, you lose energy, that you lose memory, that you will get stressed, that you, uh, you will forget things. So the switching is the problem. So if you want to get the best out of your brain, you should avoid multitasking as much as possible. Eliminate as many switches as possible. So this is one is core. A core consequence of always being connected is this goddamn multitask. And multitasking, and there are many things, if, I, in a, if I'm in a group of people, many little exercises, tests we do, but believe me, thousands of research make it very clear that multitasking is pathetically inefficient. But it's really, I need a word stronger than pathetic uh, without becoming, uh, you, sh you should say, S, asterisk, 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 asterisk. It's really fucking inefficient. You screw up. Your brain work doesn't sound nice, but maybe you can help me as an English native to find a polite word to express how pathetically inefficient uh, multitasking is and how much you lose. You lose in creativity and productivity, how many, much more stress you have. It is a total disaster for your thinking word, multitasking. Horrifically, yeah? perhaps. <clears throat> horrific. Horrifically. Horrific. Yeah, horrifically, but there is, ah, it's, once you know, it's, 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 it's worse. And so, and what, and what is it about, so, okay, so, so why is it that being always connected seduces us into this multitasking? What, what, what's the mechanism? Well, the thing is that uh, the, the normal way of working now is that you are reading, an article, let's say, for your job, or you're, you're, you're reading information about a meeting that you'll have tomorrow. And while you're reading this uh, information, your phone goes beep, beep, beep. Eh? And it's your phone that decides what you do, when you do it. Eh? And, uh, and you look at the oh, there is a little pop-up screen on your screen and says that there is an email. So every time a hundred times during half an hour, you're distracted. So every time that you pay attention to something else, or if you are, you're working in one of those horrible open offices and you hear a phone call somewhere in the back, and that's the, that's the worst in open offices, you're distracted. You follow like for a second only, or two seconds, this phone call, but it means that your brain that can only focus on one thing and time has to make a switch. And every time you switch, you lose. You lose energy, you lose memory, you make mistakes. So, and it's the same thing when you're in a conversation, people have their phones on, or you're writing an important memo yourself, and you're distracted by emails, by people dropping in your office, by, it's a total disaster. It is a total disaster uh, that the, well, there are solutions for that, but that's the multitask. A second consequence of always being 
connecting is that it creates new stress. A new kind of stress that you could call techno-stress. <clears throat> and there are two aspects to it. One, one is that when, when people hear the word stress, they think that stress is about too much. But too much work is okay. Nobody ever got ill or burned out because of too much work. Yeah, if it is interval stress, if you have work hard, very hard, extremely hard, and then have time for recreation, working recreation, interval stress is, is healthy, makes you stronger. The stress that kills you is the stress that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on forever without time for recuperation. And this is one of the things is ha that happening is when your phone is on, because basically your phone, that you're all the time on alert. And your body, your mind is on alert for the next for the next ring, for the next important, I don't know what. Uh, you may think about it, usually it's not important at all, but you're all the time on alert and it never stops. And then sometimes in some groups, up to 80% of people take their phones to their bed. So this alertness doesn't even stop when they go to bed. And so this continuous chronic stress is, is another problem. The even, second, even during sex, right? I saw you, but twenty percent of what was it, sixteen to thirty-four year olds? Yeah, well, it's, uh, the the numbers are between twelve and twenty percent of people that stop uh, having fun in bed and having sex when when their phone goes up. Come on, they are never in the moment. They're never one hundred percent enjoying. You're not one hundred percent with your partner. You're not 100% in this beautiful meal you're having, this beautiful restaurant, enjoying gastronomic meal with your phone on the table. Ah, disconnect, disconnected. So the, right, but I got off the track with this uh, because it makes me think about other examples. Uh, ah, yeah, so that's the, the stress, yeah? chronic, chronic stress. The second kind of stress is that this multitasking makes you so horrifically, to put it politely, makes you so horrifically inefficient that you need much more time to make more mistakes. Eh? Because I can't say it takes you much more time to do the same job. No, there's so much research and I'm working with these safety managers and they really got the message because when you make more mistakes and it's in an office and you put the <coughs> you add three zeros too much or whatever to what, what you're doing it's not very important but when these people uh, plant managers and say eh, plant managers organize work in such a way that those operators have to multitask and through this multitasking not only the most stressed but they make more mistakes eh, a mistake in that situation, can cost the finger, can cost the hand, the arm, a life. So that's why those safety managers are so enthusiastic about learning about the brain. The core of is that the stress is due to chronic stress. The other stress is that you're so unbelievably inefficient that it takes you much more time. You will make more mistakes, which usually take more time to get it right than getting it right to begin with. And they cause, and it causes more stress. And this is not my opinion. Thousands of creative, 
little research and big research, large groups have been made, multitasking is a disaster. And one of the reasons is it's by itself and because it causes so much stress. And then the last consequence that has become major is lack of sleep. So people think that when they sleep, they're unconscious and losing their time in bed. And they don't know that the archiving brain, that our archiving brain does some of its most beautiful, interesting, important work, especially for creativity, when we are sleeping. When the archiving brain has the whole brain for itself to organize, reorganize, in the first two thirds of the night, it's like, um, especially more storing, restoring, reorganizing the information of the past. And the last part of the night, the night, the part that you cut off when you don't sleep enough, is preparing you for the day that comes, for the important work that comes. And that's happening at night. And so, yeah, people don't sleep, sleep enough and undermine the power of their brain by lack of sleep. And then, well, I added another one, but then I took it away again because I discovered the negative impact of open offices. Open offices, most open offices are a pure disaster for brain work. But I took it out of the book because my book is all about things that you can do to get the best of your brain. But when your employer is so, well, let's call it ignorant, uh, to still build lease by this kind of design, this kind of open offices. There's nothing you as a brain worker can do about it. And then it's very frustrating to hear that, yeah, you're right, open offices are a disaster. Yeah, but there's nothing I can do about it. So I took this chapter out of the book, put it on my website as a free book. Everybody can go to brainchains.info and to the tab free book and you can download a little book. There are two of them. The only difference is the, the front page because I was so angry when I discovered how, how disastrous open offices are that I called the book, the open, it's a little booklet, the open office is naked. But then I thought, well, it's not very diplomatic. I put another cover on it and I called it how to design brain-friendly offices. So you go to my website, make the download. There are no, even no copyrights on it. So I actually can, you can leave this, the copies of this book next to the most central uh, copy machine in your organization. You can by accident send it to 270 people. And I don't care what you do with this information. You can translate it to whatever language uh, because we have to do something about this. Okay, so that's great. That's on the side. And what are the quick tips for people who are in a disastrous open office? Then you've got a few, right? Yeah, yeah, there are a few tips. There are things, but that, that's true for everything I describe in this book. Is there are always three levels to do something about it. One is me, what can I do to improve my intellectual productivity, creativity, well-being, happiness, what can I do? And, there's, and I don't need anybody else to do that. The second level is what can we do? And we, that's me with my peers. 
or when I'm a manager with my team for my department or with the team in the team I belong to, the team, uh, the team of my boss. And then there is the level and specifically that's like an example is like the open offices. That's the responsibility of them. Yeah. So, but what you can start doing at the me level is that the first thing is you have to disconnect yourself because people who are continuously connected to their phone lose all rights to complain about their office. Yeah, because you don't control, you don't manage the disturbance number one, which is your phone. So when you are want to do real brain work that needs focus and attention, you have to start, you disconnect from all the disruptors that are under your control. That's one. Then you bring in, you, you, if you don't have a cubicle, you make one. And you put, you put a screen around you, cardboard that you got from the streets, uh, or when you bought, I don't know what. Uh, and you can put some foam on it if you want. And then, then to make it, uh, to insulate uh, it a little bit, you put wax earplugs. They are the best. I, 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 I <laughs> did you sorry? That, I thought you. I thought I heard walks, but presumably you don't mean. No, no, walks earplugs. Yeah, those little walks you have now that you have them in all kinds of foam. No, no, the old-fashioned walks. There are still you wax. can. Okay. Uh, wax. How do you pronounce it? In I, I think you say wax. W a x. W a x. That's it. Yeah. There are wax. In England, it's wax. Wax. Yeah, yeah, wax yeah that's earplugs. the word. You have to. Need them a little bit, you put them in your ears because they are the best at eliminating more or less all wavelengths. And then on top of that, you put big headphones. Even if you don't like music, but it's just to give the rest of the world the message, do not disturb. Yeah? And then you also have to learn to use your out of office in a different way. That's when you go for thinking work, for writing, whatever you do that need concentration. You put your out of office and you say, I'm not available now, but 11 o'clock, I'm there. And on your screen around you, you put a little, seven, seven euros on uh, eBay, one of those little whiteboards, and you write on it at 11 o'clock, I'm totally available for you, and you hang it on your on, on your little screen, and you go for undisturbed working. Yeah, it sounds like a joke, but it's not. But before you start doing that, you have to explain to your neighbors. And the most beautiful thing is, of course, when the others start doing the same. Yeah, I, I worked once with a, a group of young people working in one of those brain warehouses, and they became in connection with the whole world, and they, they became crazy, very bright, intelligent people. So they did a protest, and they all came with uh, motorbike helmets to give their management the message, this is an unworkable situation. Then the, well, the management was not really flexible enough to have flexible offices. And then they started changing when the clients complained because those young people were calling 
with CEOs, top people all over the world, and they were complaining, then they were having a conference call, that there was too much distracting noise on the background. And so it, instead of changing the offices, management put tele telephone booths, kind of telephone booths, all around this brain warehouse. And so what happened next is, as soon as they arrived in their office, they would go to one of those booths, start working undistracted, and when somebody really needed a booth for a phone call, they would knock on, and they would take their stuff, go out of the booth, and keep waiting until the conversation is over to have their booth. And still, that, the management didn't realize how, how clear this message was. So it's really, it's no longer ignorance. I think it's stupidity at that level. Mm. So connect yourself electronically, then create your cocoon. Co create a thinking cocoon. That's a good word. That's a good word. You have to create your cocoon. And that's also true for people who work at home. Yeah? Some people escape the office not because they like it so much better at home, because home is better than at work. I worked with a, an engineering company who is hiring the best and the brightest in engineering, the most expensive engineers you can imagine. And then four years ago, the CEO built one of those ego offices. They are just ego statements for the, for the CEO without any knowledge about what brain work is needed. And I, was, I got again involved because there was a lot of stress burnout in this group, started talking with them. And I asked those bright people, they complained about the office. I said, well, but yeah, everybody complains about the office. But if you think about your work four years ago and now, is there so much difference in productivity? And the two groups, there were two groups of about 30 people, got very close. They said that about 30 to 40% reduction of their productivity. Yeah? So you never can with trying to make your office as cheap as possible, and then you have 60, 70 expensive uh, engineers and their productivity goes down with 30%, you lose. In a few months, you lost everything you gained. But the most amazing thing was when they needed a quiet place to work, they left the office, went to the other street of the of the of the of the other end of the side of the street, and they started working in a Starbucks. Starbucks, huh? Starbucks was more quiet. Was better for them to do their work than their beautiful, magnificent offices. Come on, yeah. How how, how crazy or stupid can you be? Mm, okay. And so, <clears throat> so we create our cocoon. You talked about the, our cocoon. You talked about what I can do, and then what we can do, and what they can do. So, what can we as a collective do to improve our? Well, then there is. Uh, you can. Let me explain it with an example. There is a a company in Belgium that became a pilot of the new way of working. Uh, they were one of the first to start with it, and they became spontaneous, like the the global pilot for the whole organization all over the world. So, and what they did is they had offices 
uh, very rather simple in architecture, no ego playing there. You imagine like uh, the, the, the form of a shoebox, two levels only, so one next to the other for the different departments. And then the, uh, the executive gave the directors of those departments the freedom to organize their offices together with their people the way they wanted, within limits, uh, and using uh, furniture from particular providers, etc. So that was already one interesting step. But then I went to visit them. I came in the first uh, office, and it was the way it should be everywhere. In an open office, you should have a library atmosphere. No distractions. And so I sat down, and uh, people knew what was coming. I just was observing what was going on. And so when one of the, the, the it, was, it was the legal department, risk department, and so on, and when one of those people got a phone call and didn't go immediately to one of the little offices, they would non-verbally say, yeah, go. When two people started talking with each other, go. Mm. So you have two things there. You have an office with the priority right. And the priority for an office with brain workers should be concentration, focus. Communication, blah, 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 is usually uh, a ribbon around the box of shit. Yeah, to sell the idea of an open office, a cheap open office. Uh, and some people generally have the priorities right. Communication in the open office. And when you need to concentrate, you go out to one of those little offices there. Hey, what are those people doing most of the day? They're not doing routine work that doesn't ask for any concentration. So the, sometimes the offices, the design is okay, but the priorities are upside down. And with the priorities upside down, then we become on the we level. It is our rules of engagement. How are we going to use this layout? So this legal department had it right. Library office, concentration, reading all those contracts, need concentration, and so on. Okay, then I walked through the other departments and then I, 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 I went down and there was an office that was basically very similar in organization as the one of the legal department and there was a lot of noise. So you can imagine the situation like in many offices, there was somebody on the phone, then three people were sitting around the computer of a fourth to discuss what was on the screen. And then on the last row of, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, bureau, on the last row of desks, there was a, a man sitting. And I could see in his face that he had difficulty concentrating. And then he was looking at the others. Oh. So I, I went to sit next to him. And after a few minutes, and I, I had the impression that yeah, they, you have difficulty concentrating. I said, yeah, with all those noise and the phone calls. And I was looking at his screen, electronic schemes that he had to, much too complicated for my poor brain. And 
he was really annoyed with the with the noise. And so I asked him, but why don't you go to one of those little offices? Well, he said, we don't do that that way around here. So there was like the rule of engagement, the unspoken social rule was we stay together for the communication and all the other blah, blah, blah. And so the office was still okay. But then at the real level, you need to make with whatever, I, I give the example of an office now, and you have to, yeah, how do we deal? How are we behaving in this office? Are we all convinced that we need a library atmosphere? And how can we help each other to uh, realize this with the means we have? So that's the real level. And of course, then the day level is the level where at one point you have to say, as brain workers, yes, people, but this is just unfit. And we are sitting here with 45 people. There's no escape. I have to look at contracts, and I'm talking about the real situation of about a million euros. And uh, I have to, uh, if I make a mistake, it can cost 100,000. And I have to do this work with 45 people around me, on the phone, talking with each other. Yeah, this is, that's impossible. That's impossible. You will make mistakes, more mistakes than if you would have quite library atmosphere. So that, but that's them. Yeah, and then you have to start the discussion with these ignorant executives about what it is to have an efficient uh, open office. Mm. But what, what's fascinating to me is this is seen as modernity, right? I mean, we have the, the footage of, say, Mark Zuckerberg sitting on the end of the desk with his workers. I mean, in, yeah. so it, it feels like the thing to be doing. In fact, I've got clients who are moving much more to this way of organizing their office. And yet what, what you're telling me is actually the, the vision of more an old-fashioned. Old well, is well look at, look at those, those, um, if you look at Google... And, and other companies, I know about other companies who went with the fad of communication, communication. But if you have a communication problem, you're not going in your organization. You're not, not going to resolve it with, with your office. It's a much more basic problem. Yeah? And that's one thing people often forget. But you see now the real, uh, the companies that are ahead of the others now are going back to these flexible offices. Of course, you don't have to go back to the rabbit cages people were stuck in, in the old days. No, you can have open, flexible offices where people always can find the place, the kind of environment they need to do the work at hand. That's important. But with focus on focus. Yeah, when we're talking about office, but also in your home office, your focus should not be on communication, but on focus. And the mistake that people make is that to combine communication and focus in one room, but that's impossible. And you have basically four functions in an office, that is concentration, communication, collaboration, and relaxation, yeah, to, to, make, it, to make it simple. And you have to find the room you need to one of those four functions. But you cannot have communication and concentration in one room. That's, that's impossible. And that's the basic mistake. Hmm. 
Okay. So we took a tour there around offices, which was... Yeah, it might be a little bit away, but it's a good example of that you have to know something of the basics of the brain to design a good open office. The need of our brain, the brain is fantastic, but it has some limitations. So you have to know how the brain functions to design an environment to have to get the best out of those brains mm. and the brain work, right? You have to, in the package, you, you cannot say like Ford, just give me, the only thing I need is a good brain. What is it that I have to take a whole person with it? No, you have to, the brains come with people around it. Mm. So your office has to be based on the design of your office has to be based on what we know about the brain and brain workers and how they function. Right. So, yeah, so that was about the physical <clears throat> environment. Of course, you touched at the start there about the first rule is to disconnect yourself electronically before you start looking at your physicality. Um, and But you had some fascinating stuff in your book about just practical things you can do, which I really took away in terms of email notifications and so on. So yeah. would you like to... And you call those chain breakers. So would you like to yeah. get sort of two or three? I know there are a lot in the book. Well, really make it well I, yes and no. Because I'd rather uh, go start with the basic, uh, the most basic aspect of uh, what you have, the, the most basic knowledge you need to get back, to get your intellectual productivity back. And that's batch processing. Because all those little advices, and there are a lot I know because originally they weren't even in the book. Because I thought if I explain the brain to these bright brain workers, they will not need my little advices that I collected uh, over, over the years. They can do it on themselves. And it's because they asked for it that they added the third part. But what's crucial is what you have to do is batch process yeah batch processing i would say batch processing is the magic word of getting intellectually productive and it's something that i got from working with people in the industry and then i found out that it workers people know very well because processors also they they give the impression our computers give the impression that they are multitasking, but they, they are they are batch processing. What is batch processing? That is that you have to, you need several batches to organize your life. In the beginning, rigidly, and then you can, it becomes part, it becomes spontaneous. But the most important batch that people have to, to take care of, to protect, is the brain work batch is the thinking badge. Every brain, brain worker should have at least twice a day, 45 minutes, where work is organized in such a way that he or she is reading, writing, having a conversation on about one thing, one subject. Yeah? For our thinking brain, focus on one thing at a time. But the important thing is, without any distractions. That's it, without 
any interruptions. So trying to eliminate the message from multitasking is eliminate uh, switches as much as possible. And so you have the thinking batch from that time to that time. I will read this, write this, have this conversation. And to be able to do that fully concentrated, I eliminate all interruptions. My phone is out. My pop-up screens are out. I have this sign on my door or on my uh, headphone, do not disturb until 11 o'clock, whatever you do, you do it to be concentrated for 45 minutes. And not only you have the right to do this two times a day, but it's your duty. Your company hired you, your the companies are hiring the best brains they can find, and it's getting more and more difficult, of course, for the money they have for it, but they're hiring the best brains they have. And so it's your duty to use it. It's your duty, it's their duty, that's their level, to organize work in a way that they can get the best of their brains, but it's your duty also as an individual brain worker to organize yourself, and if it's office work, manager or whatever, two times, 45 minutes, undistracted. That's key. That's, your, that's going to save you and then you and your career. But then the next batch is the most difficult one. To be able to protect your thinking batch, you have to build a shelter. A shelter line, we have the bunkers here in the, in the dunes, a shelter a followed shelter against the weapons of mass distraction. Uh, email, Facebook, all those distractions. And you have, and that's the most difficult one. The, 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 it's simple to explain, but in the beginning, it's very difficult because it needs some discipline and creativity that you decide for yourself all those messages. I will concentrate them, let's say, in four batches a day. And without those four batches, I will not look, not get in touch with my phone. Yeah. I'm the boss, not my phone. I'm the boss. I have to be in control. And so, and that's difficult. It's just in the beginning very difficult. But almost everybody who started on four times a day finds out that three times a day is also sufficient if you do these messages, you process these messages in a professional way. Behind, on a good ergonomic chair, a nice desk, a huge screen, the biggest you can get, so you have your emails, spreadsheets, whatever your job is, you have it all, a professional keyboard, and with those little, little thumbs on a little thumb screen, it's ridiculous thinking that you can do professional work or that it's... Uh, the, the, a smartphone is a consumer gadget. Yeah? Don't forget that it's not a professional tool. It's good in emergencies, but uh, it's perfect in emergencies. But it's not professional. But you have a professional keyboard, and then you go for all those magic messages for the five minutes or half an hour, whatever time you took for it. And it becomes so much more efficient when you do it in batches because then you can make micro badges, you can sort your emails per subject, per person, whatever. You will be amazed how much 
of those uh, messages you can process when you do it like a profession. So, but that's the most difficult. Uh, you need thinking batch, then you have a message batch, then you also need a conversation batch. Uh, you don't have to accept that everybody is dropping in by the phone or in life. Uh, then we have an open door policy in our company. That's one of the stupidities. Open door policy they has nothing to do with doors. It's a mentality. I know companies where the doors are open, but they have a closed door mentality. Mm, I know companies. Everyone's terrified to go in the door, right? Yeah, it's um, it's ridiculous. It's a communication problem. You won't resolve that this way. But you need to organize yourself only when you're a manager. And if you have an office, for example, you put one of those whiteboards on your door and say, I'm available at the left o'clock. Yeah, you disconnect uh, also from these conversations. And then uh, you, you need a batch for what's the polite word again uh, for it? Shit, shit task. This little uh, menial. Mm. What's the polite word for a little shit batch? Yeah, shit. shit uh... A shit batch. We can't yeah, say or, it now. Uh, oh, you could call it. Uh, menial task, so yeah. Menial task. You need a menial task batch, but people understand the shit batch. Uh, mm. better, I think. And these menial tasks are little tasks that you get. You cannot delegate them. You have to do them, but you don't like. When you do, it doesn't give you much satisfaction. And so people tend to postpone these little tasks. The result is that very often, then when they're busy with an important task, the little task has become urgent. And they have to drop their important work to tend to the little task. Uh, and it's frustration all the way. So what I advise people to do, uh, usually I'm different from David Allen. I, I don't like to many lists, but the shit list, uh, I think, can be useful uh, for real important task, I always say people, when you get a task, you have to go to your agenda. And look, when am I going to do that? Put it immediately in your agenda. And if there's no place in your agenda, you have to, you refuse the task or you have to discuss other other solutions. But anyway, but for the shit task, I, it's an important example. When you get one of those little tasks, yeah, you write it down. Just write it down, put it aside. And then on Friday, Friday, Four o'clock, you have the shit batch. But then again, in the best of circumstances, uh, you do all that little stuff, needed tasks, it's usually emails, things you have to write, people you have to talk, or go and see, you You go to it. Some people need two shit batches, uh, one on Wednesday, one on Friday. And another advantage is when you do one little menial task, it doesn't give you much satisfaction. But when you clean up a heap of those little tasks, especially when it's the end of the day, you waff, it feels like you've done something. Yeah. And so, and then the last one that I added in most recent years is a family batch. That I really would like people to do that, that batch processing systematically at home. Because uh, you have read the book, and so you have read that. The most important disillusion in this re research was that uh, before I started it, I had this idea, and I even told it in 
plug public. Yeah? That's the danger of just uh, of having an opinion. That this multitasking and always being connected was a problem, especially of old people like myself. But that there was a young generation coming, connected, and playing with screens from the crib. And that they were the hope for the future. But luckily enough, I researched that idea too, and I was wrong. I was wrong, Richard. I've never been so wrong in my life, in every aspect. To make a long story short, the sooner and the more children are connected to their little screens, the worse. <laughs> the worse for every aspect of their development. It's really a pity. It's really a pity. And my basic mistake was that I thought that I didn't make a good differentiation between digital natives and digital savvy. And what is clear in one sentence is that digital natives do not become digital savvy if we don't help them. There's only a very small percentage the nerds that by uh, stimulated, motivated by their own interest, become digital savvy. But if we don't help the kids, the digital natives, they do not become digital savvy, but they become addicted consumers of the technology. And the developers of the technology do it willfully to make this uh, software, those applications, as addictive as possible. One journalist many years ago called me a paranoid technophobe when I dared saying that. I'm so happy that now in the last two years, uh, on my LinkedIn page, I have 15 statements of top nerds from Google and uh, Facebook and so on who explain that they really made this technology as addictive as possible. And the interesting thing is they started thinking about what they really were doing when they got kids of their own. Mm. Then they realized, hey, what are, what are we doing? Yeah? And, and so we, and we have to help the kids. And the best way, teachers have to do it on, in schools, but you as parents, and that was my last batch, the family batch, where are they going to learn to batch process themselves? It is when they see their parents doing it. Uh, no phone, so they have to make their homework. No phone when they are on the table. There are maybe phone-free zones in the house, phone-free times of the day. And then there's times to play around, to mess around, to, to do all kinds of dangerous things in the streets or in the woods, whatever, in the sea where you're living, uh, to, to, to live an experience and not being all the time connected to a screen. And the place where they're going to learn is at home to become, uh, I would say, conscious users of the technology to their own profit uh, and not being used by um, the developers of the technology and, and the software, not being used and used without them knowing. So 
So the batch processing is the is the magic word. Start batch processing, and you will see when you start doing. I have I have had hundreds of times the same reaction now. People, and I've seen a lot of them due to my prehistory in stress. I still see a lot of people before, in or after burnout. Even people on the verge of burnout, oh, overwhelmed at what they're doing. The reaction is when they start batch processing. I have time now. I have mails. I just eh, just before the weekend, I got I got an email. This lady, every time I have time now. I have time. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Mm, okay, so that's the message. I can I can. But I've even since yesterday, I've been starting to implement some of your, because you talk about, well, okay, how do you create space for these batch processing? And one of the things you talk about is being militant about turning off your notifications. Yeah, and I'm pretty good, but I didn't go as, hadn't got as far as you suggested in the book. And I turned everything off last night. And I could really feel at emotional level, like somehow feeling vulnerable or like exposed. Like, so nothing, <laughs> like a number of, okay, very good. On, there's, there's not a single notification on my phone. And yet this morning in preparing for our interview, and I'd, I'd batched out my time, you know, I'd got 90 minutes before we were starting to go through all my notes and get prepared yeah. in my head. And this was interesting as well. You said, set your email program up so that it doesn't default to your inbox, so that it defaults to your calendar. And that I hadn't done. So, of course, I go in this morning and I'm going, wanting to go into the calendar for, for our chat to open up the Zoom and so on. It took me to the inbox. I go to the inbox. I think, okay, I'll just, 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 the, just one, just the urgent ones. <laughs> and then one's come in. And it's not really urgent, but it is important. It's about a, actually a, a disgruntled guest from a feature episode, past episode. He's not happy about it, and that sort of triggered up all these emotions. And then I'm trying to sort of process. Well, I care. How am I going to respond to this? And and it just threw me for a loop for like 15 minutes in the middle of my prep for you. Perfect example. Perfect example of what what you're saying here and why it's so important to create. Yeah. Bunker, right? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect example. Perfect example. And that's that's. Uh, and some people go go far with that. I got this CEO who was really at the verge of burnout, sent by his HR director, and she was absolutely right. And he went so far even that they work on different continents that he made continent days. Let's say Tuesday for the Americas. Uh, Wednesday for Europe, then you had Africa and the East. It's really four days. And he told the whole organization, unless it's really, really urgent, I don't want to receive emails from the East on Monday because I'm not going to look at it. I'm only going to look at it on Thursday. Yeah? And once everybody knew, and he knew when somebody, and then I said, when it's urgent, from now on you call. Hmm. Yeah? And then I have a little trick with, an, uh, with a separate phone for the emergencies. Uh, because so too many people are so afraid of missing out on a, a rare emergency call that they may get, that they uh, mess up their whole work for this one possible, maybe once a month emergency. So I always say to people, if you really think that you are necessary in case of emergency, what you do is you find another solution for the emergencies so that you do, you're not seduced into this multitasking with the excuse of this one emergency a month or a year or whatever. 
and and so this guy also the, the, the beauty we were i was skyping with him uh he is from italian origin i was skype, skyping with him he was in brazil and uh, I said, oh, Theo, I am so happy. I am so happy now. You know, I have a time now. I have a time now. Then the funny thing that happened is he's married to Lola, and she was pregnant when I started coaching him. And all of a sudden, her face appeared in front of the camera, in front of him. And she said, and Theo, he have a time now for me too. <laughs> So this lady, yeah, his wife, uh, they have a, they have a son now. Uh, she was so happy because she saw what was going on. She was worried about her guy, and she was pregnant. And then the guy who, who was on the verge of burning out, and she then with the baby, and, uh, and her husband didn't have time for her. She was already thinking, "Well, send and we'll have a baby, and he'll be uh, overwhelmed with work." And she was so happy. You should have seen. Theo, and he has a time now for me too. <laughs> that's that's the power of match process. Okay, no, no, I love it. And I know we've been going for a while now, but one thing that I just think is fascinating, just to, to dip into a little bit, is this this mechanism of addiction. You write a bit about that, right? And you talk about the the wanting, um, uh, the wanting system, and the liking system, right? Yeah. Well, there are there are. I listed in my book, I list 10 reasons why this, even the simple email system that was not made for addiction, while Facebook, WhatsApp, Google are, are made to make you addicted, but even a system like emails that is not made to make you an addict becomes addictive. And there are several, uh, there are 10 reasons um, one of them is the immediate gratification you have. Uh, and linked to this immediate gratif gratification is the fun factor. So every time you go on the internet, be it mail or Facebook or whatever, you get a little shot of dopamine in your brain. <laughs> and dopamine is uh, a natural drug, the product we produce in our brain, that's of the same family like amphetamine. It gives us a little kick, but it's a short kick. It makes you alert, but for a short while. So it wanes rapidly, and so you need another kick, and another kick, and another. It's the fun kick. Huh? It's adrenaline, amphetamine, it's that kind of uh, product in our brains. And so we become really addicted in the biological sense of the word to the immediate kick that we get, an immediate gratification. And, and so that's the reason why people, when they feel a little bit uh, tired, a little bit depressed, they go on the internet and you get all those little kicks. However, when you do intellectual work, and that makes it difficult, that's why the only reason why I give the 10 reasons why people get addicted is to warn people, hey, lady or man, it will be difficult in the beginning. Yeah, because you have to, uh, what, do you, what do you say in English? Um, uh, good cold turkey yeah, with, with, this, with this drug. It's really like a, a drug and there will be symptoms when you, when you stop it. 
But then there is another thing that once you uh, get over the phase of your missing the little kicks and experiencing concentrated working as boring, yeah? So there is a, there's a problem there, and especially with young people and the older people too. Uh, the, you, you Working on one subject, 14, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, they feel bored. But what is happening is that they feel less alert because they miss the kicks, the kicks of being stimulated all the time. Once you get over that level and you start enjoying concentrated work for 30, 45 minutes and you write your memo, to give, just to give an example, you write your memo and it's a good memo, you get good feedback of it, it gives you another feeling, satisfaction. Satisfaction also has its brain components that are more from the family of op opioids, eh? opium and, and, and that morphine and that stuff. And the difference is it's not an immediate kick, but it's very long last. It's possible that after writing this memo, and then you have had a meeting where your memo I was pulled out by the CEO. <sighs> what a feeling, satisfaction. It's possible that two months later, thinking back at that moment, you still feel the satisfaction. So it's a lower level, pleasant feeling, but it's long term. Yeah, you don't get immediately, but it lasts long. The fun factor is immediately, but it's gone. It's just gone after a few seconds, it's gone. So, and then when we look about, talk about social media, there are other things like the, the fear of being left out, uh, fear of missing out, fearing of being excluded. So there are quite a few, I would say, factors that are built in our system that, and the app builders are after that. And they're more primitive reactions, uh, more closer to our reflex brain. So to put it black and white, the app builders are after our primitive reflex brain to get us addicted and to not leave the screen. Yeah, and then you, you'll have to disconnect. You have, you have to be stronger than them to start using this great technology as a professional in schools as a professional learner. And as a professional, it is to find and process relevant information. That's one. The second thing is that you are in control. You use this great technology when you want, when you decide for the subjects that are important for you, for your career and whatever. Relevant information you're in control, you decide also how long you will uh, use it and so on. And the third one is when you use it, you pay attention. As an addict pulled into the system, uh, you're not in control. It's the system, it's your technology that decides when you look at it, how long you're busy with it, as long as possible, of course. Uh, it's the, and they get you with an never-ending stream of interesting, but totally irrelevant information. You're no longer in control, and it's not, you don't use it at the moment for your success, but you are being used 
for their success. Uh, the Facebooks and the Googles of this world. So this is, it's a, little, it's a little black and white, but it's the same technology. You can use it as a professional for yourself, your company, whatever, your family, or you can be seduced to use it as an addicted consumer. There's nothing wrong with that if you stay in control. Well, you go on the internet, okay, I'll go it, and you put the system, you can put it on your computer even, or you, and I, I'm going to enjoy surfing, doing whatever, Facebooking for half an hour, fine. Stay in control, that's my batch, that's my Facebook batch. And as soon as the half an hour is over, I stop. Yeah, I can see that, but you've really got to then, you, you really are talking about, for many people, and certainly I would include myself in this, is managing addiction. So I need to sort of out, recover yeah. from that addiction so the, to the point that I have that strength to, to do it for just to say yeah. half an hour. And then over time, build up more of this pull towards doing the, the concentrated work and getting the satisfaction from that. Yeah. And that replaces, get, in some sense, the loss. Yeah, you describe it perfectly. And once you're there, it becomes very spontaneous because it's so much more efficient. You're so much more relaxed. You're so much more efficient that basically you, you, you function in a different way. But I warn you, I, I experienced it. Yeah? The guru experienced it himself. Once in a while, you fell back on the old behavior. Yeah, uh, especially when I've been on a trip, there's a lot of stuff to do. and. Uh, and then like after the day, I'd be, hey, Theo, what are you doing? And then I start, okay, okay, okay. And I myself then have to force myself, hey, I'm from that time to that time, then that's what I'm going to do. From that time to that time. And I start batching again. And in a day, I'm out. I'm out of it. Yeah? Because mm -hmm. I feel less comfortable multitasking now than I'm um, when I'm multitasking. But I must say, it is still seductive for me too. Mm. And there must be some proof in your output, <laughs> your, your intellectual productivity. Oh, yes, it, to be, it makes a big difference. Uh, it yeah, very high with the amount of um, books. And, yeah, yeah, it makes a big difference. Make, absolutely. That's fantastic. Okay. Um, is there anything you you feel like we we could have covered that we you know that you you, you really love to get out there to the to the listeners or do you do you feel like we've we've got through the meat of your of your message around? Well, there is there's there's one thing it's rather worrisome that is uh, when you ask this question is using your phone for child. Okay. Yeah, is this a, it's a, it's the most dangerous uh, form. It's not just intellectually for your intellectual productivity but people do not know how dangerous it is to use this technology while driving and again and again with groups i ask them i show them the four ways of using the technology while driving phone in hand hands-free voice commanded texting Nobody realizes, or very few people, even when safety at work is the job, like safety managers and plan managers, they don't realize how dangerous it is to use your phone or drive. And they do not know, yeah, it's not about like percentages, no, using your phone while driving is eight times the risk of having an accident. Using a phone while driving is eight times bigger. 
And hands-free or not, that's the other point, does not make any difference. Any. Because it's your brain that's the bottle. And then the lawmakers make a stupid mistake by forbidding using a phone in hand. Because then when people use their phone, hands-free, and they think that they're safe. You're not. There's no difference whatsoever, phone in hand or hands-free. And if there's, and that's 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 really. It's not a question of productivity, but it's a question of human lives there. Yeah, and it's not. Um, so there, we really have work to do. To, and it's against it because the. Telecommunication companies and car companies are using all the dirty tricks the tobacco industry used in the past to prevent lawmakers from forbidding phone in the car. And lawmakers, I found out, but because I went to talk with civil servants about it, and those civil servants in the uh, in the what do they call it traffic department know this research as good as I know it. But they say there is not a single politician who would dare taking away the phone, the gadget of those people. If he would start with a law to forbid the use of phones while driving, they would declare him, well, he, he would never be re-elected. It would be the end of his career. Right. And, it's, and that's how pervasive the addiction is across society, perhaps. Is it that or is it the, the money yes. of the telecoms, telecoms lobbyists? No, it's 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 combination. Yeah. And on the one hand, you have the addicted consumer, because at any moment in time, 10%, it was five years ago, 10%, now it's about 15%, 20% of people are using a phone while driving. And it is so dangerous. It is so dangerous, you wouldn't. You wouldn't believe it, and then people say, "Ah, yeah, those difference with uh, talking to a person next to you," and all those um, these ideas that they have, and it has all been researched. Hundreds and hundreds of beautiful and creative, creative little researches in simulators, but in real life, there's the 100 car experiment in the United States, where they analyzed 4 million miles, cameras to the inside, to the outside, sensors in the car, computer in the trunk, 4 million miles analyzed using a phone in the car. Any way you may use it is, is, uh, should be forbidden. And it's okay, you don't have to be for lawmakers, that's them, but there's only one thing everybody of us should do when you get in your car and you start driving, no phone whatsoever. The only thing you can leave, and there's software for that, is as soon as you are driving, there's a message, automatic message, telling the person calling, I heard your call, I want to drive safely, I will stop as soon as I can do it safe. And then you drive until the next uh, petrol station or parking lot or whatever, you park your car and you take your phone. That's the only way to drive safe. And that's a question of life. Mm. It's not just uh, stupid little mistakes. Okay. Well, thank you. Powerful message and I'm a driver, so that's certainly hit home for me. Yeah, you can start at 
you don't need anybody. You can start doing that today. Mm. Mm. Okay, finally, this is I, I ask all of my my guests, so my final question, Theo, to you, what does it mean to be human? Ah, for me, for me, to be human is uh, to be curious, to explore, um, to explore, but not, not just in research, to explore relationships, to enjoy uh, what is it to be human? Man, I didn't know that was your last question. I'm a little um, taken. That's great. There. But I think the the I would say two things. It is the, my brain and people. If I, if I want to put it in the context of what we have been discussing, because the most important most important tool to be to get the best out of your whole human being is your brain and knowing something about the brain. I'm learning about the brain all the time. But the second uh, tool, if you may call it like that, uh, to be human is other people. So I would say uh, the combination of people um, and my own brain, <laughs> learning about the people, but learning in a scientific way, getting to know people, to have good relationship with people. Uh, my wife on the first place, married for 45 years. My two daughters who are here now in the villa, my grandchildren, the people around me. I think people would be ex-equal number one. <laughs> Fantastic. Beautiful. Now for people who want to get more of Combanole, where, where should they go? Uh, they can go to the uh, my website, Compernole, C O M P E R N O double dot com. That's my website. Or they can go go if it's about the brain chains. I made a little website. We can just see how I dabble into the technology myself because I, uh, I made it myself. Um, and that's the website. Brain chains, not change, but uh, chain. Mm. B r a i n c h r a i n s. Brain chains. Dot info. And there they can find all the information they, they need about my books and uh, and my person. Okay. Well, Professor Campanale, thank you so much for your time. And uh, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much.